Malachi Greb, my guest on today's show, says his mission is freeing humans one robot at a time. He's the founder of Elite Automation, a company specializing in robotic cell solutions for applications such as robotic welding, material handling, as well as mechanical engineering and machining. Malachi and I talked about some of the latest technologies in the robotics field. We discussed his career journey, from dropping out of high school on purpose to founding his own company in his 20s, which has grown to 27 employees in just a few years. Perhaps the most interesting thing we talked about is how Malachi channels the same type of programming skills he uses in robotics to create a business system that enables him to scale his company. If you're looking for an interview with an astute entrepreneur who doesn't like to take no for an answer, or you just want to learn about industrial robots, this one's for you. This is Swarfcast, the podcast for professionals in precision machining. I'm your host, Noah Graf. As listeners of this podcast know, my family company, Graf Pinkert, has been buying and selling used machine tools all over the world for the last 80 years. Every day while selling machinery, we talk to owners of machining companies who tell us they want to expand their business through acquisition. We also encounter a lot of owners of companies who are ready to exit but don't have successors. This inspired us to start a new business service, Graf Pinkert Acquisitions and Sales, in which we serve as consultants for precision machining companies who want to buy or sell their businesses. There are a lot of business brokers out there who can list your company. But for the most part, those people are generalists. They may not have even heard of precision machining. Another unique thing about working with Graf Pinkert is that we often have a personal relationship with both the potential buyer and seller, putting us in a rare position to evaluate if the two parties are a good fit for each other. Go to grafpinkert.com to contact us for a consultation to see if your sales or acquisitions needs are a good fit for our services. Mention this podcast and we will give you a free tabletop valuation of your company's equipment. Click on the link in the show notes. Malachi Greb, founder of Elite Automation. Welcome to the podcast. I am so honored to have you. Thank you. I'm honored to be on your show. Really appreciate it. So Malachi, first, just to give some people some context, tell us about your company. Sure. So the company is uh, Elite Automation. Our core business model is capital projects. So automated capital projects in the manufacturing space. So we're designing automated systems, a lot of custom automated systems that are to take a manual process and turn it into an automated process. And and we do all different types of, of applications, anything from simple palletizing to more complex assembly to even robotic welding. Uh, but that's also another thing about our business is we do a lot with robotics and motion controls. So we're always like moving things around. There's always some motion in the type of systems that we build. And there's always generally some level of technology that's there, right? Like I said, it's, there's servo motion, there's like line tracking, vision systems, robotics, and a, a lot of coordinated motion between these things. 
And, and that's kind of the core of, of what we do. We have a, a material handling side of our business, and then we also have a robotic welding side of our business as well. The robotic welding side is you setting up the cells or actually providing, uh, what, ex- explain that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so the robotic cells that we do, right, that'd be considered like the capital project part of it, where it, it consists of the robot, turn in, that, that turns the fixturing. And then within that, there is weld fixturing, and then there's the integration. So we both provide the capital project as well as the weld fixturing. We're doing extremely well on the weld fixturing side of things because it's less of a competitive market in the sense of some of the big players that, that are doing some weld fixturing, like Lincoln Electric. Uh, they have an automation division and, you know, they're doing the capital system and they're also doing the weld fixturing. However, like when it comes to like the weld fixturing, they can't be as competitive because there's still a lot of labor in the design and the manufacturing of those weld fixturings. Whereas the capital side, at least for robotic welding, is very much a procurement, right? Like you buy robots, you buy your turnions. Most of the things are not a custom Thing. Now, sometimes we'll do like custom turnions and stuff as well. But what is a turnion? Turnion is what rotates the fixture, right? It changes the position oh. of the fixture. So, like maybe the robot can weld on the top side and then it rotates around to the bottom side and it performs some more welds on the bottom. Okay. It just gives you the ability to reach more pieces of the part you're welding from more places. Interesting. Now, I want to know how did you how did you get to be where you are? Give me the the five minute life story. Yeah, sure. So. You know, I kind of started off young, not really having a. How old are you now? Thirty-one. Thirty-one. Okay. Yeah, so I'm still pretty, still pretty young, at least for for this industry and where I'm at. But you know, I started off, uh, started off life a little bit rough, not much direction, kind of hanging out with the wrong people, and you know, I dropped out of high school, ended up wow. getting my GED very quickly. So you know, I wasn't going to graduate high school until I was like 19 years old. And then I you know, made a commitment to myself. Okay, I'm 16. I'll drop out now. And as long as I can get my my GED by the time I'm 17, I accomplished that. I, I did get my GED by the time I was 17. And you know, from there, I was I was eager and ready to start college. I, why did you Why did you decide to drop out of high school if you knew you were going to go get a GED? Because I wasn't going to graduate until I was 19. Ah, so that's why. Yeah, I was already behind. I wouldn't say behind. Like that was when I was just, I wasn't held back or anything. I was just that's just how my birthday fell where I was just going to graduate at the age of 19. And, oh, and wow. I yeah, yeah. Because I, they say, you know, a lot of people that nowadays the parents like their kids to have birthdays like that so their brains yeah. are more developed. But you were bored, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to wait till like 19 years old to like when you can start going to college at 18. I mean, and also I wasn't super like it wasn't like I was just trying to be successful in life. And that's why I was looking to drop out of school. I was already skipping school and and not really wanting to be there anyway. And uh, you got your GED and then you went to school. Yep. So I got my GED and then I had to wait. I even looked to see if like, hey, can I go ahead and start college now? But there was pretty much no programs that allowed you to start college before the age of 18. Uh, so I had to wait till I turned 18. Then from there, I uh, actually, I started out going to college for an electrical lineman and then realized shortly into the program within the first semester that you needed a CDL to, to really get hired in that. In that what sector. is a CDL? So like basically a semi driver's license, right? Because they expect you to drive that big rig truck. And, you know, that was like the kind of the consensus. Like you really need to get a CDL if you want to get a position at one of these companies because they need you to be able to drive the truck. 
Well, at this point in time, I also had a suspended license and it was going to be suspended for like two years. I was going to say, what's the problem? You (laughs) you have a driver's license. So you have to go to the CDL, you know, you have to go through schooling and everything like that to get a CDL as well. So that's like a whole nother side of schooling that you'd have to do just to be able to to do that. But the, the main factor was I had a suspended license and it was suspended for like multiple years. So I was like, huh, well, I'm going to get this degree and like, I'm not going to be able to do anything with it. So or at least I'm going to have to wait another year or two till I can. Like, All right. So then you pivoted? Yeah. So then I pivoted, right? That's when I kind of shifted. Uh, I was actually going to a, a community college at that time. And I, when I pivoted, I pivoted just to another program in that same college. So, you know, I basically went went in, into the into the office with the advisors and said, hey, like, I'm looking for a different program. I need I need something, right? And, and it, you know, listed off all the different programs that they had. And whenever they got to robotics, I was like, what's that? You know, and they, they, they it sounds cool. I mean, yeah, sounds cool. Right. And they read it off and I was like, that's it. I didn't even move on to the next one. I was like, I, that's it. So I was, I was pretty committed as soon as they brought that one up and described what it was. It sounds like since then you, the ro- robots have just spoken to you. It's just yeah. fascinating. You. Yeah. I got, you know, maybe this is a serendipity thing, but, uh, it sounds, sounds a hell of a lot like serendipity. The one thing didn't work and then found something that really did speak to you. Yeah. And then also within my first semester of that new program, uh, one of my professors in my PLC course, you know, I I expressed to her that like, Hey, I want to, you know, I kind of wanted to travel. I didn't have any kids at this time. Hey, I want to travel. And like, I kind of wanted to get out of where I live, the town I lived in too, just to like not be here. Where do you live? Uh, where did you live? Ev- Evansville, Indiana. Okay. And it was mainly just kind of get away from like the people that I grew up with and just make some space there, you know? And she had advised. So, so because like I told her like kind of like some of the things I was looking for in, in an employer, she's like, well, actually I went to college with this guy, right? Serendipity dots. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he, he, he owns this automation company here in Evansville. And I think they may be looking for some people. So, uh, I went over there, I interviewed, I got the job and. So you said, I guess I'll leave Evansville later. Yep. Oh, well, so, so part of the thing with that in Evansville is, is being a systems integrator. You travel for work. That's where they thought oh. connected there. Yep. You travel to do like installs and stuff like that. So you're spending like a month or two out of town. I see. Uh, so, landed so you that became job. you were you became an integrator. Yep. So, and like my specific job, so I, I worked for an integrator. We are technically an integrator or a OEM system builder. My technical, I started off. Well, I started off at the very beginning, kind of just being a grunt and just doing some mechanical install stuff, some electrical wiring stuff, and actually, this kind of aligns with you quite a bit. But I did a, a lot of the uh, robot refurb too. So we had like a side of the company where we bottled robots and, and we refurbished them, put new motors and stuff on them and, and got them back up to good running condition. How so, old were the robots? Some of the oldest were probably 25 years old. Really? 25-year-old yeah. robots people still want? Yeah. Well, the biggest thing is, is this is actually a funny thing that I learned from that business, but the 25-year-old robots, they generally sit in the basement forever. And then at some point they say, oh, we're going to sell them for scrap. Mm-hmm. And then somebody comes in and says, okay, I'll buy them. Right. Then they buy them and they uh, maybe they have to do some refurb. Maybe they don't. But the funny thing is, is that same company will call six months later and saying, hey, on line one, I have a, a 1927 R2000 robot down. Right. I'm just I'm just being, you know, and do you, do you guys still have one? We had mm-hmm. one down in our basement, right? So they buy back the same robot that they, they sold for pennies to replace another robot that was at the end of the line that went down. 
I get, I, I definitely <laughs> understand that world. So you were an integrator. Tell me a few of the kind of things that you'd integrate. Yeah. So that company also did uh, quite a bit of robotics. They did a lot with vision, a lot of automotive glass. So we were, we were doing like the, the palletization, depalletization of glass. We were doing some like value add type of applications where we're putting like camera brackets onto the windshield or putting them through like a, a nipper system where it basically it's the process where they, you take two sheets of glass with a laminate in between them and, and make them uh, shatterproof. So that the, the nipper process is what that's called, where it basically runs them through a machine where it presses them together. Uh, so we did some projects like that. So yeah, also a lot of like robotics and, and vision. Vision was the really big one because... So explain you know, vision. Yeah. So vision is essentially a tool, a camera that gives essentially a, a robot or piece of automated equipment. It gives it eyes. Right, gives it the ability to see what it's working with, right? And, and going back to like uh, an example of like working with this glass, the the glass would come down a conveyor, right? It's traveling down a 200 foot length of conveyor. Okay, it gets to the robot cell and it's shifted around as it traveled through that 200 feet of of conveyor, right? But the robot needs to be able to pick it up very very precisely to within like a millimeter and place it into this next operation. Well, what we do then is we'll take an image of that object, in this case glass, and identify it, identify its orientation, its X, Y, Z, and then be able to pick up in the exact same spot every single time to be able to place it into the next operation perfectly. Interesting. My understanding based on uh, another podcast interview I did, this is like the big future, right? Vision, just keep getting better and better for for robots to not bump into things and yeah i mean it's definitely has has already made a pretty significant impact in the industry you know to go back to my story a little bit the, the company yeah. that I came from the one thing that was really really unique about that company is 10 years ago they had a better what was the name of the company uh, midwest motion it was, a fairly, okay. it was a fairly small company but they had a better vision system than cognex and keyants which are the leaders in the industry right now. 10 years ago, they had a better vision system than they did capability-wise. However, where, where Cognix and Keyence shined was two major things. User interface was better and uh, marketing. They just marketed better, right? Nobody <laughs> knew about this proprietary vision system that you know Midwest Motion had, but everybody knew who Keyence and Cognix was, right? And that's why those companies were big and making money. Yep. So, you know, over time, Keyence and Cognex have caught up with the capabilities of that system and can pretty much handle everything that it can. But yeah, that's one thing that gave that company an edge. It was something that was really cool that we got to work with and I got a lot of exposure to and also a lot of exposure to, since it was like a custom built type of vision system. I got to see like a lot of the back end and see a lot of how like those vision tools worked and even Got to understand. I could read like the structured text programming that it was written in, and kind of, and ha- at least have an understanding of like how the logic was was scanning and, and all the different processes that were happening. And so that gave me like a really good fundamental knowledge of like how vision works in the background, and also working with lighting and stuff like that. Okay, so you you were there, and then what was the next stop? Honestly, I spent pretty much my entire career at that at that company before okay. starting. And then, uh, and then, so one day you're just like, I'm ready. It's time. Yeah. Well, one day, one day actually happened two years before that, that one day, but explain. So two years prior to that, you know, I had some other engagements. I had another YouTube channel that I was doing in the fitness sector. I, mm-hmm. I decided 
to drop that, just cut it off right then and there and said, I'm going to devote all my time into manufacturing. I'm going to devote all my time towards this business here and trying to help them grow their company as much as I could. And I said, I'm going to give it a year and I'll see where we're at. And so we got to the end of that that one year and and I kind of didn't feel like they, they, they had taken a lot of the initiatives that I had put in place and, you know, listened to those type of things. But I can still just tell, right? They're, they didn't have like the the leadership that was needed to to grow. The company was in business for like twenty something years at this point, and and it it's still been a fairly small company. And um, they didn't they they didn't want to grow, or they were just incompetent, or it was like one of those things where you say I want to grow, but you really are not doing nothing to try to grow. Okay, right? You don't like have active salespeople. You don't have marketing. You don't have like the things in place to initiate growing you, you you work a 40 hour work week whenever you know it takes 80 hour work weeks to to grow a business at least at, you know at least until you really really get it off the ground you know so that was a big part of it right the opportunity was never going to be there i kind of had in my mind at some point that i wanted to be like an executive in a company and i also i had a nature of i, I don't do very well in like the the corporate setting as far as like climbing a ladder right I always pick up things and 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 do the things that other people don't want to do. I learned electrical engineering. I learned how to do risk assessments of safe of of you know safety systems. You know, I learned how to do all these things, and I picked up all these extra slacks. But I'm also the guy that would get probably get passed up by some other guy that did less. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So right. So you 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 sounds like that's why you are an entrepreneur. Yep, sounds like it. <laughs> okay, so then you said, all right, I'm going to do this myself. What the heck does one do when you say, I want to start my own robot integrator? Is that what the first the first thing you were going to offer was integration? Yep. Yeah, I want to do exactly what I was doing. One other, uh, So the next thing that did that was I took one more year. Whenever I came to that definitive decision that this company won't, be, won't ever get to the point that I need it to get to, then I made the definitive decision that, okay, I'm going to start my own company. I'm going to do it a year from now. And what, what was the idea? What would you do in that year? In that year... Uh, it gave me a little bit more time to be become a little bit more financially sound. I had mm-hmm. some investments. I was investing in like Tesla and stuff back then. This is like the 2000, like around COVID, right before COVID time. So I made some good money with some, you know, Tesla and stuff like that. And I'm really good at saving too. So like I, I could dump like any extra dollar that I had into, into, into the stock market and stuff. But that wasn't really it. The Really what it was was just take one year to like just get my mind about me, right? Like to get to observe the company even more, see where there's gaps, see where I want to do things differently and like, you know, hone in on my skills, just get a little bit more experience. And then also, you know, roughly six years before I finally pulled the trigger fully, I I went ahead and legalized the company, started building a website, started a LinkedIn, started building out some of the back end social stuff prior to leaving. And then you were ready for when you wanted to do it with yourself. Yeah. I was getting prepared, started sending out a little bit of like LinkedIn outreach messaging. Hey, I'm, you know, thinking about, you know, starting my own company, da, 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 da. And, um, okay. So you start, how do where do you start when you're starting your own company? Do you, were you, were you a one man band at the beginning or did you have a co-founder or what? Yes and no. So actually I, I did start the company. I, I had the plan at this one year mark. I had had the plan. I'm going to start the company. It's going to happen. And then roughly around that six month mark that I was talking about, I had a coworker who worked under me as a junior and the guy was really sharp. I mean, for being a junior that just came out of college, like we, we had a lot of alignment in the, in his like thought process and, 
just his ability to pick up on things like we just we just jived really well with and so we were also executing that's that's the best if you have if you have a partner to to push each other and okay so you went into business together yep until until two weeks till it's time to pull the trigger and he sends me a, a one a one paragraph text message saying i don't know if this is for me i don't know <laughs> i think i might wow. want to do other things in life and i'm like huh okay like probably, probably one of closer to one of the most devastating messages that I've I've ever received in my life. To be honest, that was a and hard. Now, one. And now you would say it was serendipity. Now it's just serendipity, yeah. <laughs> because you got to do it in your own way. Yeah, I mean, there may have been complications, you know, with with having a partnership and and all that, but. But I mean, you know, in my life, whenever I've had various projects and things, I've often felt like a one man band, and I felt like it it ended up holding me back in the end. It's really, I find it remarkable that you'd be able to have such a successful company and not have somebody else to like pull you up when you're down. Um, Did you have anybody like that? Or you pretty much just like push through on your own? I'm really good at enduring pain. I I didn't really think about it a lot. I kind of went through like quite a bit of like, um, you know, emotional abuse. Like when I was younger, uh-huh. you know, my, my mom talked really bad to me. And I think from a young age, it, it made me like really strong to like things like coming at me, right? Like if this didn't go well, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like that's still like one of my biggest focuses as far as like enduring things that are coming in the door. Cause now new things that are, are coming in the door that I have, I have no control over in the sense of, you know, like let's say for instance, we're in a financial situation. I can't put money into the company that will be anywhere near what the company would need to survive, right? Mm-hmm. It's no it's 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 way past like what a single human can do, right? So like when it's just me, all I have to do is worry about my own livelihood and and I can make that work. If I got to do, you know, like in the very beginning I I did like uh DoorDash and Uber and stuff like that, right? I I I'd go out and I would drive in the evenings, I'd get myself out from behind the computer and and I'd go make a little extra money that that way I wasn't eating too much into my into my reserves that I had uh, mm-hmm. put back for for you know doing doing this company and even still then you know, gave me the time that I could you know get on LinkedIn and hack on my phone and communicate with people and network like that uh in, in any of the downtime times in between but yeah going back into it like I think I just really gained the ability to endure a lot uh, also in this like exact same period of time the mother of my three children left, which was like literally like one week before. So how old were you when you first had a child? 21, I think. 21. Wow. So you're out there starting this business and you already have, how many kids did you have when you were starting the business? Three. Uh, Well, hold on. Four. How many kids do you have now? Six. Wow. (laughs) Man, I have a one and a half year old and I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> how, do, how do people how do people have more than one i could right. guess i could see more than one more but so your wife left at that time did the kids did you have the kids or did she take the kids yeah so that was that ended up being a whole thing so like uh sorry if this is not yeah, no, if you don't want to talk about this or, no i mean this is a good thing because i mean i feel like you know somebody else will go through like some similar situation i mean so many people go through like divorce and stuff like that. So it's good for people to, to get these insights. But yeah, so she tried to do like a whole thing where she like tried to take the kids from me. She tried to say like I was abusing her and blah, blah, blah. But like the whole thing is she left She left with some other guy was the whole mm-hmm. thing. She was trying to like skew it to really just try to like be able to like 
She wanted to just go with this other guy and act like I didn't exist, right? Well, that was her whole strategy. So through that, I, you know, immediately had to get an attorney. I was fighting, fighting that custody thing. Wow. You know, I, think, I think it took me a few months. I, I started getting them back pretty immediately for like the, I got them like every weekend, but I still, I wasn't used to be, I had, I had the kids every single day of my life since they were born. You know what I mean? So it was definitely that that was like the hardest part of all of it and so i fairly i fairly quickly got him back on the weekends and oh but yeah one of the one of the caveats to that was i i told her i'd pay her ten thousand dollars i said i'll tell you what i said she also left the state too and, and moved to another state so mm-hmm. i said i'll, I'll pay you ten thousand dollars to move back to the state is what it was right thank you to everybody listening to this It gives me a real sense of purpose, knowing that people feel they get a lot of value out of the show, enough value at least to take the time to listen. Likely some serendipitous occurrence caused you to discover Swarfcast, and I know it might get tiring with me constantly talking about serendipity, but it's just on my mind a lot lately. You might have saw a promo for the show on social media, or a coworker told you about it. In any case, if you know of somebody out there who would get some value out of the show, I'd like you to return the favor that you received once upon a time and spread the word. That's the only way others are going to find out about it. Back to the episode. May I ask, she was your wife or just your... Technically, we were just together. We were together like seven years, though. Did she change from when you first met her? Is that what happened? Yes and no. Uh, definitely I would say a lot of it was I changed whenever Uh, we got, whenever we got together, I was still young. I was like 20 something years old. This is the beginning of, yeah. when you're 21, you're a kid, you're totally different now. I would almost say there was more of me that changed in the sense of like, I became ambitious. There was something Mm -hmm. I was after something I went to, you know, I went to college and, and then she kind of just didn't really want to do anything. She worked and she worked a lot of, a lot of hours and she, but like she had, she, that was it. Like she would just work. Right. Um, so there was, there was some segregation where we, where we split because of, we had different aspirations in life. Right. I would say that's probably where the major conflict came. And then I think that there's, I think there's a plausibility. Maybe she was cheating throughout the time period we were together too. Like after we, after we broke up at this period of time, there's like somebody else that called me and said, Hey, I just want to let you know that she was actually cheating on you with my brother too, or something. So it's like, okay, uh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Put the, salt, <laughs> put the salt in your wounds. Yeah. Okay, so you started this company and then, you know, I'm just me and I'm sure tons of people listening to this are just like, all right, you want to start a company, okay? You were a one-man band at one point. How do you how did you get to the point where you and I know it's a lot of steps and it's probably have to be a double podcast to go through all the different <laughs> things you went through. If you had to divide up your journey into a couple parts from then until now, which I guess would be what, eight years or nine years, eight, 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the total length of it. Yeah. So um, definitely something that was a big milestone, a couple of milestones I'll go through real quickly. One earlier on in my, in my career, I started, I started watching a lot of like fitness YouTube stuff, right? Okay. I, I didn't have the time to work out. So I, was, I educated myself on fitness so that when I did have the time to work out, I knew exactly what I was doing when I got into the gym. So I did that. Then I then I started working out when I finally got the time. Then I was looking at passive income streams and blah, blah, blah. And so that led me to start uh, a YouTube fitness channel. You know, I then did that for some years, which led me to. And that uh, was when you were 
had your own company or that was before that was when you were working this is is like from the beginning yep when i very first i'm just giving you like a quick like boom 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 Uh, that was when you were still working for the integrator yep at the very beginning of my career yep yeah and then so that led me into marketing because i was like how to grow a youtube channel right and so those questions arose on like how to and then so then that like is social media marketing that's that's where a lot of my social media marketing you know uh skills that kind of came from and then, you know, then when I chopped that off and then I started, you know, went 101% into manufacturing, gave that company one year, spent one more year just honing in on my skills and, and just getting better at my craft, you know, finally made, finally made the leap. Oh, but pro- in, into that stage there too, I also, I also changed like the contents and stuff that I was listening to, to be in more like more business, business strategy. I went, I even went to like some like business seminars and stuff like that, which was also one of the milestones that made me realize that I have something different to start. A what company. was the business seminar you went to? Uh, it was, it's Patrick, but David's the vault. So oh, Patrick, but, Patrick, but David, he has a, uh, a YouTube channel. It's called, uh, the value value team. It's the name of this channel. Okay. So really, really good channels. One of my favorite channels to like listen to business stuff and the content's changed a lot now, but it used to be very like business strategy based and like it was very like tactical business. I, I like that about it. And so that that and listening to Gary Vanderchucks and I had like some other guys too that I was like listening to and some of the fitness people that I they they were fitness influencers, so they started their own businesses and stuff like that. So I got to kind of see like a little bit of some of of you know that that life transition for them, learn about business. Then we got to the point where, you know, I finally made the leap, leap myself. Um, I was, I was pretty adamant about not doing time and material work. I wanted to, cause I, I, I wanted to get out of that nine, nine to five mindset. I wanted to, mm-hmm. I wanted to be a business, right? I didn't want to be an employee. So through that, I was like, okay, I'm not going to, you know, accept time and material work, at least at first, at least until I feel like I got past this feeling of I am a business and I'm not just an employee. And so I did that for some time. And and there was a period of time there too, where, I, you know, I kind of just had to, you know, live off of some of my savings and, and then we get some small projects, panel builds. And when did you fi- hire your first employee? I think roughly six months in. How so, many employees do you have now? 27. 27 employees. Yeah. Given, given like we have employees in India and the Philippines too, so that, that's oh. given a competitive edge. How many employees do you have in the United States? Uh, like six. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So are some of those employees just like virtual assistants or are they people that are actually doing like robotic stuff? I personally don't consider any of them virtual assistants. Like they're okay. all, you know, I, I consider them all all employees. They're all, all working are they programmers uh, or what are, yeah, what are they doing? Yeah, yeah, we have mechanical designers, PLC programmers, robot programmers, simulation engineers. Like, how do you they, find those people? Upwork. So we have like our own network now. Of, of now, when we need to hire people, we can kind of just lean on on the employees that we currently have to you know find us the next person. But that you know that was a, that was a whole interesting like thing that occurred as well. So like originally, you know, I was, I was finger bopping LinkedIn and, and sending out sales messages. And, and then somebody was bugging me about a virtual assistant. Right. And I was like, okay, well, finally I said, okay, I'll do it. Whatever. Like, this seems like a pretty good deal. So I ended up hiring yeah. a virtual assistant. So then they kind of helped me with LinkedIn. And then I, I ended up doing it with like, then I, then I was, it was more of a, Hey, do you have any friends looking for a job? It just kind of shifted into, and just more, uh, more things, right? Like, so we hired a marketing person for doing video editing. Cause even at this point in time, I had, uh, I had already started our, our elite automation YouTube channel. So we've been producing content the entire time we've been alive uh, as a incredible. company. 
How 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 do you think that's helped your business? I mean, I know some of the stuff you do you do it because that's just what you want to do. You feel sure. like it's leaving your mark. You enjoy it. Has the YouTube stuff been like integral to your success? Yes and no. So I mean, like if you was like say like it's not super revenue driving, if that makes sense. It it's totally not- makes sense to me. I mean, like my dad yeah. and I, I'll be frank. I mean, we could make more money if theoretically, if we only if we didn't worry about writing blogs and the podcast, et cetera. If I had somebody like forcing me to but then again, you have to have something that keeps you in the game, that keeps you interested. And, yeah. you know, and it does develop a brand and it does develop an identity and and give you cred. Yeah. That's for sure. But it sounds like maybe there's a little bit into that. Like you you do it because it gives you purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the next caveat to that is, especially in the sector of the industry we're, where we're in, where we're machine builders, our customers are buying big ticket items. Like everything that we do, I put a minimum of a, of a two-year ROI on it. So if, okay. we, if we put somebody new on LinkedIn outreach, I don't anticipate an ROI for two years from that person because it's probably going to be, you know, six months before we actually land a purchase order, right? I'm not going to say leads. Leads is another thing, right? We get leads, but the actual purchase order from that person generating leads, right? And and going into marketing, right? If If I post a video today, it's going to be two years from now before I see an ROI of somebody just hitting us up because they've seen some video. This did just literally happen like last week though. Somebody said, hey, I seen this universal robot video that you had and it had some vision system on it. And I actually have a need for something like very, very similar to that. And so so that was pretty cool. Right. And it's very cool. But I mean, maybe you're wrong. Maybe now you just hit like a critical mass and it's, it's like pin action. And you're just, yeah. you know, the similar thing happened with us. We put something we put a commercial on the podcast about our business brokering and somebody called us and they said, yeah, I'm a longtime fan of the blog and the podcast. And that's why I called you to sell our business. And I'm thinking I don't know. I prefer not to think it's just an anomaly. Probably if this person called on your video, think about all the other people out there that are seeing it, that it might speak to them. I mean, or maybe you're just, maybe it is just uh, luck and you shouldn't read too far (laughs) into it. But to me, it seems like it gives you an awful lot of credibility and and it just exposes people to it. So I, I don't know, but it's interesting. It sounds like you have a very like realistic or modest expectations for it. Yeah, well, at least when I look at it for like an ROI sake, like we're yeah. today, we're not going to see it for two years. And also because like one of the things is, is like when you post a post today, somebody may see it today, but it's not going to be till the 10th post that they see from you that they maybe think about buying. Unless they have like an immediate urgent need, they don't have a vendor to solve the problem, right? Yeah. They have to see your contents over time to, to even want to buy. And then we have a long buying process in the first place, right? Like most of the purchases. So how much? Okay. So if, what does your stuff cost? A traditional system would be anywhere between 200000 to $1 million. Okay. And what would that be for doing? Welding, um, uh, automotive stuff? or Yeah. Like let's say, for instance, like one robotic weld cell with like fixturing would be maybe like $600,000. Dealing with bigger capital stuff. Like we have one, we have a project quoted right now for like $2.7 million, $2.75 million or something like that. So they can come in all different all different sizes and there's different sectors like automotive is really good for repeat business and really good for large purchase order values 
you know, the big, Wait, the big what, what sectors do you make the most money in? And I, I mean, I don't know what if somebody asked me this, if I'd be able to give them a good answer. I'm just curious. Like, I mean, are all is automotive? Are they like tough negotiators and hard to make money in? Or where where do you go? Oh, it's this these people. I, I'm I'm excited yeah. about that. I mean, with you know, with automotive and like the welding sector, one big thing about that is is like it works on like a program basis. So every time you see a new vehicle come out on the market there's also new weld fixtures that need to be made for that robot. Or, I mean, for that for that new vehicle that was made. Chevy Chevy comes out and says, okay, 2025, we're going to have uh, a new you know, Suburban. And so now all new fixturing needs to be made for that 2025 Suburban now. That's and then, yeah, and so every single vehicle in the world is the same way, right? As soon as there's a new model of a vehicle, there's going to need to be tooling changes. So maybe the capital... The Tesla doesn't have to really buy too many new cells because all their stuff looks yeah. exactly the same. Yeah, it's probably why they do that and they're not... Yeah, this is that's one thing that I look at in the automotive sector. I'm just thinking like, you guys should like chill out a little bit and let a vehicle sit on the market for you know a few more years and not modify all the you know automation and everything that goes around it. But that's you know that's their choice. But so go back to it. Like the automotive is just much more of a repeat type of business because of that nature of like they come out with a new vehicle, they need new fixturing. So the capital the capital weld cell may not change. Because you can just run different fixtures in that same well. Is it really hard to break into that, the automotive? Because I bet you they have a lot of big guys that is very very competitive. Yeah, it's very competitive. Like if we didn't have our supply chain and the way that we operate, like I don't even know that we could break into the market the way we have. But we're, you know, we're very competitive in our pricing. We're very competitive in our execution time but i mean even just to sell that first one to the automotive companies was that really hard to like break in that first time or is it just kind of like they look for bids they look for bids and and also too like a lot of times they'll start you off with something small so like a lot of this has been this is goes back into the two-year roi thing as well that even once you get that first purchase order a lot of times that first purchase order is a small dollar amount to give you some tryout of something maybe they first they use you for robot programming services then the next time they're like, hey, I need this panel built. And then next time, hey, we have you know some good conveyors or something we need installed. And then then like maybe the third time they say, hey, we need this whole capital robotic cell that has two a conveyor going in it, conveyor going out it, uh, a stretch yeah. wrapper. You know what I mean? And that's also why I say such a long like ROI and for our type of business because you got to go through that tryout phase. You seem like, like a very you seem like a very patient business person. I think I have to be. I have no other choice. Like this is, well, yeah, you have no other choice. However, <laughs> you know, like you also, you know, need to pay the bills. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, you can be patient and patient, but different people have different temperaments about it. What we've are you? Done, yeah, we've done really well at being able to like execute quickly enough and be profitable enough on projects that it gets us through and gets us really the ability to grow pretty quickly. The number of employees we have this year if I'm not mistaken, is the same number of employees we had at the end of last year. So we essentially, we put a freeze on our, on our hiring and there's been a couple of people that have gotten let go, got let go. And there's been a, a couple of new people that we when brought. You said in. you had 27 employees before I went, holy crap. I mean, okay. They are 27 employees, but six of them are in this country. What's your shirt say that you're wearing underneath your, uh, freeing humans, one robot at a time. It seems like you've tried to create this business where you were freed up to live in the way you wanted to do the things you wanted. Do you see some sort of parallel between 
this on your shirt and the way you've approached your business, automating your business. Have you reflected on this before or am I, am I clever yeah. than others? No, I think that, I think that um, the major thing that has impacted like the business and my own mindset is I came from a programming background. So, you know, like the way that you have to think about a system and like, okay, the part needs to do like this, then it needs to do that, then it needs to do this next thing, then it needs to do that. Now we need to flip it, bop it, twist it, right? And so like through that thought and that like logical, like thinking through things, it's definitely created like a mentality of like a very systematic approach of things. Mm-hmm. You know, that paired with my desire to just scale the company and, and grow it to one of the largest companies in the world, that basically gave me the mindset to be able to do the things. But the the objective is, is to free my time so that I can operate as CEO of the company. Like, yeah, no, I mean, that's like the grail that so many people don't even can't grasp, don't, yeah, under, don't, don't even yeah. understand it. I sort of understand it. I don't know how to achieve such a thing, but that's partly choice and partly it's just getting wrapping your head around it. How difficult was it for you to, because you went from being a, a, you know, you started as an employee and then you were a one man band. How difficult was it to start delegating and trusting other people? And was it difficult to trust other people to do as well as you or at least good enough? All, immediately, I want to say no, not really. It wasn't difficult. Uh, no. The, however, is that because you, you had great people or is that because you have a low ego, a small ego? <laughs> um, my biggest thing that I care about when it comes to those things is that things are done in a procedural way. And, and I feel like I feel like I can listen to somebody's feedback or somebody's way of doing something. And if it seems like a good idea logically, then I'm like, okay. Uh, but there's also a lot of things that I, become, coming from the background that I came from with like engineering and dealing with data, there was like a lot of good things that I had kind of put in place that that I said, hey, there's, this is the procedure. This is how I want you guys to like store stuff in the drive. This is how I want you guys to create a project folder whenever we do this. So like the things are procedure and you just go back to like, hey, this is the procedure. Why was it not done like this? So if somebody, say like myself, wanted to run a company in a, like a company, Mm -hmm. um, I guess one piece of advice might be to work with somebody with a mind like yours that could then create the system. So you're, it's a very interesting thing of looking at things, looking at a business like an engineer and how that's enabled you to make it, you know, for forgive the cliche, you know, run like a well-oiled machine. Um, I find it really interesting. I find that 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 makes total sense about you being a programmer. And that was what enabled you to organize things so well. But I know somebody else in our business, um, in the, they have a machining company, and they were able to sort of do a similar thing. And they also are very into programming. So there's definitely something to that. So how do you feel about not getting to, uh, you know, be on the computer, coming up with the system and and programming? I mean, you're programming in a way, you're programming in the vision of the company. And that's way cool. And sounds like you really like that lifestyle. But at the same time, what got you into this was robots. So I don't know, do you miss that part? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I miss it as much as I dislike the sense of loss of knowledge. So I feel like over time, like you kind of lo- you're losing it. You know, I still get involved with with like a lot of the engineering things. So like 
you know, I'll, I'll help out with some robot programming. I'll help out with like some PLC programming. Like we just accepted a, a simulation thing for a project for, for Nissan. And I'm personally going to do the simulation because it's like a three day, it's like a three day gig. Like it's something easy. I can get in, do it and then get out. But yeah, the biggest thing is just like the sense of loss of, of, of the skill set. That's interesting. But I understand it coming from you because so it's a loss of the skill set. And do you feel like your mind is is less sharp? And does that bother you? I mean, as far as like a sharpness level, like absolutely not. I feel like I'm mentality wise and the things that I've experienced over the years. It's like I have such a um, I don't know how to say it without just saying it. So like. (laughs) So just say it, damn it, Malachi. Say it. Like I'll say it like, you know, I'm 31 and I don't know shit. You know what I mean? I have that type of mentality. That like the 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 guy that that's that's forty years old, he's not going to be the guy that's thirty one years old. You know what I mean? So like, I know that like at least who I am today, the version of me ten years from now is going to not. You know, I can't even compete with that person by by any means, and so therefore that goes to other people as well. So like anybody who has like the you know, wisdom and skill and knowledge above mine that. You know, I'm still I'm still a young cat in the industry. I might be doing cool cool things and, and making things happen quickly and and all that. I like but that I, you I like that you have that perspective. That's really smart. That says something about you. The classic modern American dream is your Steve Jobs, you know, or uh, <laughs> you know Bill Gates and Zuckerberg. And they start their company and they're young punk with a lot of swag and all. But I think if you really look at the statistics, it shows that older people uh, with more different experiences actually have more success starting businesses than than younger people who have balls and energy. But, you know, you, it sounds like you have good perspective on that, which yeah. that, that bodes well. Yeah, I mean, like, say, for instance, like, one thing I look at it for myself personally, I could have spent, you know, another three to five years probably going to work for some company as like a sales rep and like building out like those those sales skills and, you know, witnessing other people's sales operations. Whereas, you know, with me and Elite, like I've had to basically like psychologically engineer what the sales system is for our company because I didn't have any experience in that in that like in the sales sector of, of our industry. So everything just had to be created off of like knowledge from books and and what other people are saying they're doing and and things like that. Right. So well sometimes I, I, experience is overrated if it's experience doing the wrong thing too. That is true. A couple more questions sure. and then I, I gotta go uh and you got to go, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. Rapid fire. Cobots sure. versus industrial robots. I know you don't want to offend anybody, but are cobots, are they a little overrated? I'd say they, they are overrated, especially if they're not equipped with other tools like like vision system, bin picking vision, things along those lines. So they can be equipped with that. You know, I, I interviewed this other guy and, and he was telling me that the main thing about cobots is that they're light so they can hit you, but they're just as stupid as regular robots. Would you say that's true? Pretty much. And people are trying to use them in complex situations, which doesn't really help with their name, right? And then the issue with using them in a non-complex situation is is you can't have the same cycle time that you would with a traditional robot. And so everybody's trying to cut costs by, let's say, reducing the number of robots that it takes to do an operation. You know, let's say, for instance, if it takes two collaborative robots to do the same thing that one traditional robot can do. Is that a typical equation? I would say the the reduction, you probably lose like somewhere between like 30% speed. 30%. 30, 30%. Yeah, so it's not like a double, like, but it isn't like a traditional robot's double the speed. 
but losing 30 percent is a big deal whenever every whenever every robot you deploy is using yeah. like 80 percent capacity of what it do you think that and don't get me wrong universal robots that's a great product you know but do you think it's, it's just been a lot of really good marketing they've created this sort of friendly robot image yeah i mean it, don't, don't get me wrong like they're one of the best at marketing um, they do have extremely good marketing and, uh, they have a lot of takeaways for somebody who, who's also trying to market. Sure. But there's also really good use cases for them too, right? Like if something fits within their payload and it's a slower cycle time, like a lot of like palletization, palletization makes a lot of sense with, with collaborative robots because you don't have to worry about putting up the full fencing around it. Mm-hmm. If you want, if you want to, you can more easily have like four stacking stations, like four pallet areas where you can stack and you don't have the constraints of like, okay, now I have to put fencing around it. Now I have to have a, a conveyor to be able to get the part outside the robot cell because you always have to think about with a traditional robot, how does the human interface with that system? Does the product just get spit out of the system? Does an operator have to go inside the system? So with a traditional robot, that's one of the major differences between traditional and collaborative is, is traditionally you really have to think about how am I interfacing with this system? Yeah, and, and space, which is uh, obviously it's, that's a big deal for a lot of people. Yeah, and, and now collaborative robots have more of a competitive edge because the, re- the reach and the payload has mm-hmm. been increased, which was a huge limiting factor you know, because like say for even like a, I said palletization, but palletization wasn't even really an option because the pay to, payload was so less. Like, what are you going to pick up with a, a 10 kg payload, which is like, you know, 22 pounds? You know, there's a lot of products that weigh over 22 pounds that you can't pick up, you know. so How heavy of a thing can a universal robot pick up now? If I'm not mistaken, the biggest one's 35 kg, which is 66 pounds or something like that. Okay. And other robots, I mean, they're just trucks and cars. Yeah, you can get whatever whatever. size you want. Yeah, for your application. (laughs) Yeah. Malachi, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and having me on your podcast, The Manufacturing Come Up. And if people are interested in looking at The Manufacturing Come Up, it's on all the apps. And it's also a live streamed podcast that you can watch on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Thank you.